We're approaching a subject this morning that is immense. It is a subject of great sobriety. Uh, One might wonder why uh, a a pastor would ever take up this subject. And of course, the, the simple answer is that it is plainly taught throughout the Word of God. So it is my hope this morning to take up a very difficult subject. This has been personally difficult for me to wrestle through the many nuances and nooks and crannies. And let me say at the outset, I will not be able to answer in the short space of one message all of the questions that might arise from the very subject itself. But I have tried to make as plain the notion as it applies to the context of the passage that we will be considering this morning. So if you will open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. We will stand together and we will read verses 16 through 19. Brethren, let us give full attention to this sobering but instructive passage. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. And brethren, let us hear the blessed and holy word of God. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Amen. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Let's now join our hearts in prayer, brethren. O blessed and holy Father, what a great mercy it is. What a blessing to come together with Thy people into Thy presence. To come into the presence of the Most High God, the Creator of all the universe, the Sustainer of all things, and the Judge of all men. Lord, how we praise and thank Thee that Thou art not only Creator and Judge, but the great Redeemer, the great Savior of sinners, the great Savior of Thy people. Righteous and holy Father, we pray according to Thy great mercy that Thou wouldst be pleased to pour out Thy Spirit fully upon us this morning, Lord. What can I say, especially on a subject like this, that would turn any human heart to Thee? My work will be in vain, Lord, worse than useless, except Thou just come by the power of Thy Spirit and open our hearts. Father, I know that some may find this a very difficult doctrine to bear this morning. I pray that Thou wouldst come and make this alive in our minds and our hearts. Lord, point us with great power to Thee, to Thy redeeming work, to Thy cross, to Thy empty tomb, to Thy glorious ascension, and to Thy 
being seated even at this moment at the Father's right hand, interceding for us. Come, Lord Jesus, make Thyself known in our midst. May all the praise be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, O great God, please save, save the lost and build Thy church. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle John to write these wonderful words. God is love. 1 John 4, verse 8 and verse 16. Now, if we have new hearts, we delight in the love of God. If we have new hearts, we rejoice in the love of God. If we have new hearts, we gladly tell others about the love of God. Unfortunately, some people seem to think that love is the only attribute of God or even the most important attribute of God, which it is not. Yet the sacred text we just read poses a problem. It says that God hates some things and some people. Just as the Holy Spirit inspired John, the Spirit also inspired Solomon to write, These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto Him. Two of the things listed of those seven are certain people not just their sins. This is shocking language. What a horrifying thought that the one who has all power could hate. What disturbing words. The God who loves according to the inspired and infallible Word, is also the God who hates. We should sit up and take notice then, as the Father in our passage teaches His Son that God hates certain things and certain people. He wants His Son to know the greatest danger of sin. He's been warning him about adultery. He's been warning him about not paying other people's debts. He's been warning him about not being lazy. He's warned him about not being a worthless, wicked person. But now he presents the greatest danger. God's hatred. 
with this startling thought in mind. The message is entitled, Seven Things God Hates. May the love of, of God instruct us as we consider the hatred of God. May our blessed Father, the God who is love, grant us much light, humility, and wisdom as we consider, one, the reality of God's astonishing and dreadful hatred. Two, the list of seven things God hates. And we will then make one application. God being our helper then, let us consider the reality of God's astonishing and dreadful hatred. In this inspired text, Solomon teaches his son something that sounds astonishing to modern ears. I can honestly say that I do not believe in the 30 years prior to my conversion, and I'm fairly certain in the 30 years after my conversion, I've never heard anyone preach on the hatred of God. There are many reasons for that, no doubt. But it is an important part of the Scripture. And to ignore it is to ignore the whole counsel of God. These six things doth the Lord hate. It doesn't say irritate Him, uh, put Him in a bad mood. It says He hates them. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. What dreadful words if we believe them. Nevertheless, they are important words. They are God's words. To make this point unforgettable, the Father raises a fearful and alarming subject. God's hatred. And He uses a device... These six things. No, seven. There are a number of ideas as to why that formula appears in numerous places in the Scripture. But it certainly appears that it is one of those devices to help someone remember something. And usually, at least according to many who have spent great time studying the Hebrew, usually points to the fact that the last item is the most vile. These six things, no seven, God hates them. <clears throat> now, some of us may be so saturated and captivated by the thought of God's love that we have never really thought about God's hatred. So, how are we to understand God's hatred. How can we speak about a God of love, a God who is love, 
who hates. This subject is so foreign to our culture. And I would say, most likely to most professing Christians, that we must take a few minutes to introduce it. It will give a good part of the sermon just to this thought. Because for some of you, it may be completely new. Never thought about it ever. Or maybe you've heard it or thought of it, but have never considered it carefully. And I urge you to do so. Because they stand at the heart of this passage. The wisest man that ever lived, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, is now teaching his son that God hates some things and some people. We must then ask, what do we mean by God's hatred? God's hatred is His unchanging rejection of everything contrary to His holiness. Read this again. God's hatred, when we speak of this, most of us often think of a bad feeling. But the Scriptures make very clear that though at some points there may be hostility in God towards someone, the primary idea is rejection. It is God's unchanging rejection of everything contrary to His holiness. This hatred is an attitude of God's heart and will. We must then acknowledge that it's good. And we must love and worship Him for it as much as we would love Him for His grace, His mercy, His love, His kindness, His all-knowingness, His all-power. We must likewise love Him as a God who does indeed hate. The psalmist said, Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Psalm 45, 7. This, by the way, was a prophecy of the Lord Jesus. Love on two legs. This was a prophecy of the Lord Jesus. And we are told that in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, that quote this passage and reveal to us that this is the Son. Moses warned Israel not to be like the heathen nations for every abomination to the Lord, which He hateth, have they done unto their gods. Deuteronomy 12.31 God sent the prophets to tell Judah, Oh, do not this abominable thing that I hate. He tells his own people, I hate this. Jeremiah 44, 4. Again, the psalmist said, 
Thou hatest. Listen carefully, brethren. Hear the word of God. Psalm 5, 5. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. The psalmist also said, The wicked and him that loveth violence, him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Not just the violence, but him that loves it. The Word of God, Psalm 11, 5. Now many of us have grown up with the slogan, that I could say this in my sleep, having heard it so much. God loves this, the, the sinner, but hates the sin. Anybody heard that here? Anybody ever heard that? Very good and sincere men say that. How they can is a difficult thing in the light of the texts that we're looking at and that we will continue to consider. Brethren, listen, please. Be very, very wary of slogan Christianity. Let go and let God. It's not in the Bible. God helps those that help themselves. It's not in the Bible. And God hates the sin but loves the sinner. It's not in the Bible. We could go on. But I trust the point is that you would be discerning and prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. The statement, God loves the sin, I mean, God hates the sin but loves the sinners, at best, at best is terribly misleading. The text that we've just read makes clear God hates sinful actions, and God hates some sinners. I knew one man who wrote a tract at one point that said, the title of his tract was, Mourn, God May Hate You. Because so many people were putting bumper stickers on their car saying, Smile, God Loves You. It is important for us to understand that this is plainly set before us in the Word of God. It's a troubling thought. It's not something that draws us to God. It's something that makes us fear God. Well then, we must ask, where does God's hatred come from? If God is love, how can He hate? First, God is holy in His nature. His very nature is holy. This means that He is set apart from everything evil. He is also set apart unto everything that's good. You have to understand both aspects of that holiness. Set apart from what is evil. 
set apart unto everything that is good, gracious, kind, right, loving, merciful. Second, God is love in His nature. He is holy and He is love. Therefore, He loves holiness. He loves goodness. Thirdly, God is just in His nature. He is the measure of what is right. He doesn't have a chart. He doesn't grade, so to speak, each one of us by one another. He is the measure. And in the day of judgment, Jesus Christ will be the judge and the standard by which all things are judged. Therefore, because He is just in His nature, He loves what is right. He loves what is right. His hatred, this attitude, this resistance, this rejection comes from His holiness, His love, and His justice. Those three things cannot exist without His despising what destroys it. So, we may say God is love, but the Bible nowhere says God is hate. So how do we view it? Once again, it is God's unchanging resistance, His rejection of everything that is against His holiness. God must resist and reject everything and every person that is not holy, loving, or just, or He would love sin, the very opposite of what He is. He cannot love sin, not one sin, ever. The reason this may be so foreign to many of us is not only because we grow up hearing slogans, not only the fact that we don't study the Scriptures carefully, but also because we often do not meditate on what is revealed about our God. Jesus Christ said, This is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. God must punish all sin because He made us in His image. Adam was sinless. Eve was sinless. His hatred is His holy response to what has destroyed His image in human beings. Now, with this in mind, how do love and hate work together? Well, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 shows us that love and hate are indeed opposites. Hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins. 
Love is the power that draws and unites. Hate separates and keeps distant. Love implies longing for. Hate implies pushing away. Love implies delighting in. Hate implies disgust. Love seeks the good of someone. Hate opposes someone and his or her actions. Or his actions. It is important for us to understand this. Listen carefully. If you're drifting, if you're wrestling with this, listen carefully. God can love and hate the same person. You say, well, how can that happen? Well, people have had children. People have had relatives that they dearly and deeply love, but who make themselves disgusting and sinful and rebellious and hurtful. And while we love them on one hand, we come to resist what they are and what they're doing. Now, if fallen human beings can think that way, we ought to be able to see God more clearly. God can love and hate the same person. This is true of God's elect. Paul said, He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. God loved His people in Jesus Christ before the world began. Love before time, as we studied a couple of weeks ago. Yet in the very same letter to the Ephesians, Paul said, We were by nature the children of wrath. Even as others. In other words, had we died without the redeeming love of Christ opening our hearts and minds, we've gone to the same hell that any human being will go to. Our sins were hateful. God never loved our sins. Never. But he purposed to show his love to his people in an astonishing way. God does not hate human beings as human beings. He made human beings. He made Adam and Eve in his image and pronounced them very good. Genesis 1.31. So what happened? Sin. And that's always the issue. Sin separates, love unites. This is why God planned before the world to draw His people back to Him in love. While He hated them in their sins, He loved them in Christ. Number four, then, how does God express this hatred? God expresses His hatred in two ways. One, His wrath in this world. And two, His putting people in hell in the next world. 
When we think about God's hatred, we must understand this. God's hatred is never like sinful human hatred. And that's one of the reasons it's hard for us to understand. His love is so far above us. If we really study the Scriptures, we can't understand loving like He loves. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. How are we doing? How well are we handling that? But it's the command nonetheless, isn't it? We're to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We're to love His people. Love one another as He loved us. How are we doing? If we see every day carefully through the lenses of Scripture, we discover that our love needs a lot of help. But we think we know how to love, and we think that we're not really the kind of people that would or could hate. Unfortunately, when we take those things and apply them to God, we get a very strange picture. God doesn't sit on His throne and emote like human beings. His hatred is a constant, steady, unchanging rejection of what is against His holiness. He doesn't hate one sin today and then give it a pass the next day. As such, God, God's hatred is holy. It's hard for us to put those two words together, isn't it? It's holy. God's hatred is not a whim. God's hatred does not... Uh, it, it doesn't mean that He's cranky. He does not express His hatred because He's having a bad day. He doesn't just get angry at the drop of a hat and decide... To utterly obliterate part of the universe. He never does that. Because the universe is good. He created it. Good. The problem is sinners. My dear brethren. The scripture tells us that He expresses His disgust and rejection of everything that is contrary to His holiness, His love, and His justice. You see, sin violates all of that. It violates His holiness. We were made to be holy. We were made to be loving because He is love. Remember, He He isn't hate. God. We cannot say God is hate. It is the reaction. It is the response of His love, the response of His holiness, the response of His righteousness to that which rebels against it, which defiles it, which destroys it. The Scripture says that God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 1, chapter 7, verse 11. Now, this is astonishing if we really think about it. The one who has all power, angry with little human beings. Some people would say, oh, God's bigger than that, right? 
God is infinitely holy. And sin is the absolute antithesis. It's the opposite. It is the reality of history. God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden and cursed the earth because of sin. He destroyed the world with a flood. Men, women, children, animals. He confused the languages at the Tower of Babel. He destroyed the people in the land of Canaan. And he had Israel and Judah dragged into captivity. All for one reason. He hates sin. Jesus will express his hatred in the day of judgment. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Matthew seven twenty three. Oh, my dear brethren, we must now be careful. We must be very careful when we read about God's hatred because God's hatred may be different in some contexts. As with His love, we can't squeeze the very same definition into every time it appears. We need to think better than that. We need to read the Scriptures more carefully than that. So it is with the word hate. God does not always express His hatred in the same way in every place that we read of it. Sometimes God's hatred simply means disgust. Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, Because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Strong words for a church. Disgust. God said to Israel, I hate I despise your feast days and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Now we could read that and go right over the weight of what's being said. Who ordained this worship? God did. He's not hating the mechanics of the worship. He despises their heartless use of the things of worship. I can only imagine the disgust of those who gather in the name of Jesus Christ, half-heartedly sing, don't think about anything during the prayers except what they're going to have for lunch, and drift throughout the sermon. He despised their worship that He had ordained. And he said, I won't smell in your assemblies. What does he mean? There were offerings by the law that he had commanded that were to be a sweet savor. The worship coming up to the Lord was to be sweet. It was to be a wonderful thing. When his people got together, it was God and his people that he loved. And they were to offer up a sweet savor. He says, I won't smell it. It's disgusting. Because you come with no heart. Listen, everything about Christianity and everything about the Jewish religion as it was given was about the heart. It was never just about the mechanics. It is about the heart. And with the heart we love or we hate. 
the Lord said, bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. That means I can't even put up with it anymore. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I'm weary to bear them. See, this is disgust. We don't want to disgust the Lord when we come together. We want to bring Him praise and glory in the name of Jesus. Jesus Himself now gives us another understanding of the notion of hate. He says that if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Obviously, he's not talking about a bad feeling. He's not talking about hostility toward parents. Because this same Jesus gave the law, honor thy father and thy mother. What's he saying? If it comes down to following me or your family, you must prefer me and reject them. That's what he's saying. And you can't be his disciple apart from that. Wait a minute. Don't we have a high view of the family here? Yes. And this is the highest view. We don't worship the family. We worship Jesus, whatever the cost. And we want all our families, our wives, our, our, uh, the, our husbands, our children, we want to all follow the Lord with all our hearts. But the day may come when there's a fork in the road. Follow family or follow Jesus. And Jesus said, follow Jesus. That's how you hate your father and your mother. You pass by them to choose Christ as the one you will follow. Paul said, Jacob have I loved. Or Paul wrote, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Quoting God. The same woman's womb. Two children in the womb. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. It does not necessarily imply that God was disgusted with Esau. It doesn't necessarily imply that he had any hostility toward him. It means that God chose Jacob to life and blessing while rejecting Esau and leaving him in his sin. Sometimes God's hatred is hostility. Malachi chapter 1 verse 2 through 4 says, I loved Jacob and I hated Esau, the very passage from this, which this came, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Speaking of Esau. They shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. That's hostility. What a way to be known. The people against whom God showed His indignation. Mm. This is sober. This is the Word of God. We can find no greater expression of what God's wrath leads to, my dear brethren, than the day of judgment. This is where we will see it in its fullness. Eternity. Eternity lies before us. Jesus 
says, Depart from me. I never knew you. The book of Revelation says, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers. By the way, that's witches and drug takers. It's going to be drugs or Christ. Occult religion or Christ. Astrology or Christ. They will never mix. You don't have to decide which one you're going to go with. And idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. Brother, we just don't believe this is coming. We'd rather spend five hours studying on on YouTube what's going to happen in 2012 than to study the Word of God and find out that those without Christ are on the precipice of eternal destruction. And they need Christ. They are under the wrath of of God. There is no neutrality. You are under the wrath of God at this moment. Or you are safe in Christ. There's no middle ground there. There's no fence to sit on. Thus we see that Scripture is clear because God is holy God is love and God is just. He must punish sin. All sin, every sin. Mine, yours, every sin. God's hatred for sin gives birth to God's anger against sin. And we see it unfolding from the garden to the present day. And it will come to its full culmination in the day of judgment. Solomon wants his son to know this, that God hates some things and hates some people. Now, this brings us to ask, then, what's an abomination? Seven things are an abomination to the Lord, it says here. And the word appears at least 117 times in the Old Testament. The Hebrew expresses the most intense outrage possible. It means something that is offensive and detestable. In other words, another expression of hating something. Seven are an abomination to Him. They are offensive and detestable. Brethren, do we grasp that? That each of us here has probably been guilty of the seven things we're about to read? Or maybe all of them. Were we really conscious? Do we really believe that God hates them? That brings us to the list of the seven things that God hates. Solomon the wise father wants his son to know that God despises and rejects seven things in a young man. Young men, listen. And seven, seven things in young women and, and anyone here. The first is a proud look. The Bible could not be clearer. Oh, my brethren, God hates pride. Pride was Satan's sin. A proud look literally means high eyes, haughty eyes. The proud look comes from an arrogant heart. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy 
do I hate? God doesn't wink at your pride. He hates it. He must. He must. If he loved pride, he'd have to love Satan. He'd have to love sin. Psalm 10.4 The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. I don't need God. Science tells me all I need to know. We're going we're gonna to fix everything. We're going to fix the world. We're going to move into the brave new world. We're going to clone people. We're going to go into transhumanism and make a brand new evolutionary leap in the human race. We're going to have happy lives, uh, disease-free lives. We don't need that antiquated thought about God. Haughty arrogance. I don't need God. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Haughty arrogance. The lofty looks of man, God promises. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. There won't be arrogant faces with noses pointed up in the air. The haughtiness of man shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. It's because we think we're little gods. We live according to our own desires. The day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty and upon everyone that is lifted up and he shall be brought low. It's God's promise. Likewise, Isaiah says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, that he brings great judgment upon them. They're proud of their fashion. They're proud, they're arrogant about what they're wearing and how they look and how they smell. And God says, the day is coming when that will all be brought down. Did you come to church? Do you come to church to bring glory to God or to be looked at? Oh, God help us. Young men and anyone can become proud because of their status, their possessions, their wealth, their education, their strength, their good looks, their knowledge, their clothing, their job, their abilities, and numerous other things. We can make an idol out of anything. We can be proud of anything. We're full of pride. Oh, beware of a proud look, young people. God is raising up some humble young men and women. And they will take up the cross and follow after Him daily. Others will talk about religion and think they're going to heaven and be shocked beyond words in the day of judgment. A lying tongue. God is a God of truth. His Son is the truth. His Spirit is the Spirit of truth. His Word is the Word of truth. His church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth. God hates every false way, and so should His people. Psalm 119, 104, 128. Solomon said, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but they that deal truly are His delight. You tell the truth, the Lord loves it because it's like Him. He doesn't do anything but tell the truth. But when we lie, we make ourselves like Satan. 
The painful truth is, my dear friends, the lying tongue hates those that are afflicted by it. That's what Proverbs chapter 26, 28 says. When you lie to somebody, you hate them. You don't love them. If you love them, you'll tell them the truth, even if it costs you big. You won't change the picture. You won't modify it. And you won't try to get yourself out of trouble by lying. You'll tell the truth. That's simple. God made us in His image to speak truth, but when we lie, we become the devil's image. Jesus said, He, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there was no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. John 8, 44. John Bunyan wrote in the life and death of Mr. Badman, Every lie hath the same father and mother as had the lie last spoken of. For he is a liar and the father of it. A lie then is the brat of hell. Father is Satan. The human heart is the mother. And when the lie is conceived, it is a brat of hell. That's what Bunyan's saying to us. That's why the Lord could say, to Ananias and Sapphira, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Satan is the liar and the father of it. The soul that telleth a known lie, says Bunyan, has conceived it by lying with the devil, the only father of lies. For a lie has only one father and mother, the devil and the heart. Young people, human beings lie to cover their sins. They lie to make themselves look better. They lie to slander someone's reputation. And we could go on and on and on. They lie for many reasons. But God hates the lying tongue. It's an abomination to it. He rejects it. He must judge it. Hands that shed innocent blood. Oh, my soul. God hates sinful violence. He ordained the death penalty. Yes. He also used His people to bring judgment upon the wicked. Yes, but He hates the shedding of innocent blood. Israel sacrificed their sons and daughters unto devils and shed innocent blood. Even the blood of their sons and their daughters whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Brethren, what do you think God sees in a nation that has killed 53 million babies? Innocent blood, rivers, seas, lakes of innocent blood. He hates it. Not a day goes by. Not an infant is murdered in his mother's womb or now outside it. But he doesn't hate it. Innocent blood, killing the innocent. Oh, murders, street gangs. So very often, people who have taken a wrong turn on the street end up in a place that costs them their lives. A couple of young men from England were just killed because they took a wrong turn and ended up in a bad neighborhood. And they were killed. How will our nation give account for the blood of the Holocaust 
of abortion? How will our nation give account for unjust war? How will our nation give account for the murderous violence in our streets and in our neighborhoods? How will our nation give account for the violent images that we let into our mind in the name of entertainment? God hates this. The God with all power has a steady, unchanging rejection of this. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. Here is the problem for every human being. Brethren, it's our hearts. It's not our culture. The culture is the expression of our hearts. It's the expression of our hearts. A heart that deviseth wicked imagination. God sent the flood because every imagination of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. Young people, use your heart to think good things, to say good things, to do Christ-honoring things. Or do you use your heart to plan wicked things when your parents leave the house? That ever happen? God despises that. Husbands, do you use your heart to plan good things for your wife or are you planning adultery? You're planning for those opportunities to get alone and go to the computer and use it for pornography. Devising wicked things, looking for the opportunities to pursue our lust. God hates it. He gave us a mind to think of good things, healthy things, righteous things, encouraging things, blessings for others. Not sinful satisfaction for me. Wives, do you the same? Do you use your hearts to plan what is right and good? God rejects this. He, he must judge it. Five feet that are swift in running into mischief. Young people, are your, are your feet swift to run to do good? Can you recognize what is good and biblical? And you say, that's where I want to be and that's where you run. Do you look for things that will edify others? Are you sitting around plotting how you can do something good for someone in the church? Or for your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad? Just scheming away to do all the good you can think of. Or are we swift in running to mischief? And what satisfies me? Do you look for ways to honor Christ? How may I honor Christ today? What can I do with my time that would be an encouragement, that would grow me as a Christian, that would encourage my, my younger brothers and sisters that Christ is alive and that I really believe Him? But then we move away from body parts. Lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, hearts, feet, a false witness that speak lies. This is a person. We've already considered the liar. But we must point out, God does not simply hate the lying tongue. He hates this liar. He must. He must bring His wrath upon Him. He may give Him 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 80 years. He will give Him opportunities to repent day after day after day. The day will stand 
and he will be before the Most High. And he will say, I gave you a tongue and I gave you a mind. Did you speak of me? Did you speak my truth to others? Did you bear false witness in court? Did you lie about your taxes? Finally, a person that sows discord among brethren. Few people in life do as much damage. And if, if our commentators are correct, of the seven, this is the one the Lord hates the most. Few people do as much damage as those who destroy unity with their lips. As we saw in a previous message, the worthless, wicked person, frowardness is in his heart. That means perversity. Not using himself, his mind, his heart for what he should. He deviseth mischief continually. He soweth discord. He soweth discord. Solomon says, A froward man soweth strife, and a whisperer separateth chief friends. You hear that? Somebody's mouth can destroy the loving bond between two people. It can happen in a relationship. It can happen in a family. Sometimes you get a son or a father who's not doing what he's supposed to do or a wife who's doing the same thing and destroying what the father's attempting to do in the home. And with his mouth, her mouth, they can destroy relationships right under the roof. Where, there, where no wood is, writes Solomon, there the fire goeth out. So there is no tail, where there is no tailbearer, the strife ceaseth. What's the stress and the problem coming from? It can destroy churches. It can destroy communities. You can get on the Internet and utterly obliterate people's character. And they may never recover from it. Whenever they hear your name, they think that lie that they read on the Internet. The whisperer, the gossip, the offended brother, the person who believes he has a good cause, all can destroy a friendship, a marriage, a family, a church, or a community with wicked tailbearing. It'll all sound nice and it'll even sound sometimes like they're doing you a favor by telling you. We'll be cautious. Young people, young people. You have an opportunity to change things. But the first thing you'll have to learn to govern if you have a new heart is your mouth and how you deal with other people. And that brings us to our one application. You may say, Pastor, I've had a long week. This was dismal. This was a downer. Who wants to? I want to hear about the grace of God and the love of God. I don't want to hear about the hatred of God. In fact, I don't even want to think about this this afternoon. Let me say to you, if you don't take this in and let it sink as far down in you as you possibly can, you will never truly appreciate the grace of God and the love of God and the mercy of God you will be more tempted to take it for granted than to realize that you may be under 
the judgment of God. What do we do in the light of this? Solomon has warned his son of these weighty, destructive matters. The father has now sat down and given his son this downer. But it's wisdom. It's God's wisdom. It's eternal wisdom. How will we make use of this? Well, Solomon could only point to the sacrificial system. We can point to Christ. The greatest expression of God... Listen. The greatest expression of God's hatred and of God's love in this world was the cross of Jesus Christ. At the very same moment, God's hatred for sin and God's love for His people. Jesus, the only begotten Son, became a man. He hated sin. He Himself hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Read Revelation 2 and 3. Though He was the God-man, He did not wear a proud look. He was meek and lowly of heart. With the greatest humility, He entered Jerusalem. Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy King cometh. Is the King with a mighty army? No, just a handful of followers that still were wrestling with who He was. Did He come with great and shining breastplate? No. Did He come in a mighty chariot that was covered with jewels and splendid metals? No. Thy King cometh unto thee meek and sitting upon an ass and a colt, the foal of an ass. Little donkey. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler and creator of the universe. Humble as He could be. That's who we want to know. That's who we want to learn from. Jesus made Himself of no reputation and took upon Him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He did not have a lying tongue. He used His mouth to speak the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, no man comes unto the Father but by Me. He told the truth so men would know the way to heaven. He told the truth so men and women and children would know how their sins could be forgiven. He told men of God's kingdom. He called sinners to come to Him. Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He used His hands not to shed innocent blood, but to lay them upon dark eyes so that they could see. Blind men could see. He laid His hands upon the ears of the deaf and they could hear. He touched the leper and made him clean. He used His hands for what was good and what was right and what was helpful to others, what was holy. Yet those innocent hands were nailed with cruel spikes to Calvary's cross. His heart did not devise wicked imaginations. Ever. He used his heart to think God's thoughts. He loved and obeyed God's word. He kept it in his heart. His heart devised nothing but perfect good works. His will was to do nothing but what his father sent him to do. His feet were not swift to running to mischief, 
No, the Scripture says Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all matter of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. He was not a false witness. He told the truth about Himself, about the Father, about the Spirit, and about men's hearts. Always. He never sowed discord among brethren. He began to build His church in the unity of the Gospel and the Holy Spirit, and He's still doing it. He's still about that. Nevertheless, this spotless Lamb of God became the focal point of His Father's hatred. Every member, eyes, ears, mouth, mind, hands, feet, was employed in God's perfect, perfect law. That's so that God could pour out all His fury and wrath for the sins of His people upon the Lamb of God. He bore on His head the crown of thorns. See God's hatred and yet see God's love for His people. His back was cut with whips. It was God's hatred. And yet it was God's love for His people. In the gore, in the broken body, in the spikes in His hands and feet, and in the spear that went into His side, we see God's unspeakable hatred for sin and God's unchanging love for His people. All this was God's love to save His people from their sins. God's hatred for sin the sins of believers was swallowed up in the loving sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All those who repent and believe in Christ will never, never taste God's hatred because Jesus drank it all. Every bit. That's why the only safe place in this world is where Christ is. We need to get to Him as quickly as possible. Cry out to Him. We go to His Word in which He is revealed and we trust Him. All those who believe on Him in the day of judgment will fear no wrath for all eternity. Their entering into heaven will be a joy beyond anything they can possibly imagine. All because Jesus Christ drank up all of God's hatred and wrath on their behalf. God hates more than seven things. He hates all sin, but His love, His love triumphed in Jesus Christ. Let us repent of these things and any sin and let us trust Christ alone for everlasting life. Amen. Your word is sobering, Lord, but your gospel is greater than the sins of men. Your grace abounds where sin abounded. May every lost one here look to Christ unto everlasting life and bathe in the great love of God. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's stand. The gospel, my dear friends, is good news. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which is kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Today is our first of the month celebration. My dear brethren, we will be having a meal together. We invite those of you that are uh, visiting with us today to stay in fellowship. Following our meal, we will have the Lord's Supper. The deacons will let us know shortly when they are ready for us to go into the back room where the food will be. We do encourage you to stay in fellowship. In the name of Jesus, let us be dismissed.